Coming to you live from the Molly Root House at Hamilton College, I'm Amy Booth. And I'm Emmy Goodwin. And this is Architecture, architecture and, and the environment. environment, the podcast where we talk about architecture and the environment. Today is our very first episode, and we will be discussing the many dimensions of New York City's underground. We highly recommend that you read the webpage attached to this episode before delving into the discussion with us. Let's get weird. And by weird, I mean vertical. In Stephen Graham's book, Vertical, he describes how humans look at geographic space through a horizontal perspective, which means quite literally looking at society as existing solely on the surface of the earth. This perspective has been facilitated by the creation of maps by Western colonists and continues today through our frequent use of the Mercator map and conventional GIS technologies. Western geographic thinking during the time of colonial expansion was constituted by the study, exploration, and control of the Earth's surface, a form of thinking which still holds today. Obviously, that's pretty theoretical. What do you think that kind of means in more modern society? Well, very rarely do we explore what is happening vertically, or more specifically, below us. To think about human relations in an urban environment only from a literal surface level and metaphorical surface level perspective fails to examine what is happening underground and how such happenings connect to the way a city functions holistically. As a more concrete example of that, we have the Five Points neighborhood, and we didn't mention this on our webpage, but during the Prohibition, there was also a large uh, underground LGBTQ plus sex and drug scene, which obviously at the time would not have been considered morally right. And today, we have low-income individuals, and many many of whom are undocumented immigrants, not to mention unhoused people who live in the subways. These people are neglected by both society and the government due to the negative connotations surrounding the subterranean and horizontality, which implicitly encourages people to forget about whatever lies below. Graham also discusses how the ground beneath our feet in urban environments is not actually the original Earth that has come to be through what he considers supposed natural and immutable geological processes over time. Instead, it's a product of a continuous urban cycle of destruction and construction due to fire, disaster, war, replanning, or simply desire for improvement, which ultimately prioritizes people in power, as we have seen historically. So each new layer of artificial surface becomes our reality, while the history and quite literal bodies of those who occupied the area before us becomes more and more distant. When this happens, we ignore the destruction and construction that fostered our current flat reality. This applies to New York, too. As Graham notes in Vertical, Manhattan is not naturally flat, as its name was coined by the island's original inhabitants, the Lenin Lenape Nation, and means islands of many hills. Manhattan's flatness was manufactured through wild cycles of speculation and creative destruction. So by this logic, at a certain point, the surface will become a part of the subsurface. So if you're coming from a privileged position, you're most likely only going underground as a means of transportation to the function of your daily life. So you're saying that the neglect that we're seeing is a direct result of horizontal thinking, but what do you think that neglect does or ultimately causes? All that neglect for individuals occupying subterranean spaces perpetuates already existing wealth inequalities between those living above and below the surface. These inequalities are expected to grow over time as the impacts of climate change 
also simultaneously worsen over time. I think that's a good tie-in because unfortunately in the last decade already, we've seen these inequalities happening in government responses to natural disasters and climate disasters as well as their preparation for these disasters or lack thereof. So let's take a look at hurricanes that have recently hit New York. Hurricane Sandy was one of the most destructive storms to ever hit New York, and it killed 160 people in the New York metropolitan area, as well as causing $65 billion worth of damage. And most of New York's climate action plans today have been created in response to that damage. And we see that with the SIRR, which was their first plan of action um, in response to Sandy. But nine years later, that has evolved a lot. Um, And we will talk about that a bit more with the 1NYC plan. Um, The more permanent solutions to destruction caused by Sandy and plans to prevent destruction uh, from another Sandy-level storm have mostly been implemented in Lower Manhattan, Um, notably the economic center of the world. And council people in the outer boroughs of New York critique this a bit because in the nine years since the destruction hit all of the five boroughs, they have only seen temporary solutions to their problems. And something they really emphasize is the very old drainage and sewage systems um, that really exist throughout Manhattan, but particularly in their areas. And in these larger scale projects that we see happening in lower Manhattan and lack of projects in the outer boroughs, such as Queens, it's pretty clear that federal funding is not being distributed equally across the boroughs. More recently, Hurricane Ida hit New York City and the damage from this storm was not caused by storm surges, but flash flooding caused by extreme rainfall and not aided by the port drainage systems that I mentioned before. Um, overall, leading up to this storm, they knew how bad it was going to be. Unfortunately, there was many, many warnings, but they did not have a solid system in place to evacuate individuals in these risk zones for flash floods, and they never issued a mandatory evacuation. Where during Sandy, there was mandatory evacuations issued throughout the five boroughs, and particularly in Lower Manhattan, which, as I mentioned before, was largely affected. Um... Between Sandy and Ida, the affordable housing crisis became much more drastic, and we know this because Bill de Blasio was very aware of basement dwellers because of the BACPP. Although it was a pilot program, when it lost funding in the pandemic, there was really no effort to revamp um, that funding that it lost after, which led to concerns that the project will never go beyond the eight-unit pilot it is currently instituting. And flash flooding can be very hard to predict, but as I mentioned, there are maps and systems in place that are supposed to help people, um, and the people that it should have helped were not evacuated until it was far too late. Um, And as we know, 11 lives were lost in basement apartment units and even more so out of those units. So with de Blasio knowing about the 50,000 illegal basement units, Um, he still didn't consider the dangers of living there in the event of a storm because of these factors we've mentioned in just the neglect of being below the subsurface and being 
somewhat easy to forget about. Um, only after the fact that these people's lives were lost did de Blasio really acknowledge that there should have been a more concrete evacuation plan um, and sort of made a half-hearted commitment to warn people next time. We want to acknowledge that it is not a matter of who had it worse or who suffered more between the victims of Hurricane Ida and Hurricane Sandy, but rather the government's response to these natural disasters. And although the city has said that post-Ida they are definitely looking to make more plans to prepare for flash floods in the future, as they will happen again, um, federal plans to study flood resiliency in these areas, um, such as Brooklyn, are continually being postponed um, while the East Side Coastal Resiliency Plan to protect Lower Manhattan still goes on, um, really showcasing, as Ashley Dawson well points out in his book, Extreme Cities, that the actual perils of climate change in New York tend to be overlooked by mouthwatering opportunities for entrepreneurs to usher in the next wave of green technology. Overall, of course, no matter how much planning one does for natural disasters or climate disasters, weather is very extreme and it's only getting more extreme and can take anyone by surprise. But despite prior knowledge of how storms would affect these areas, uh, there's been a clear unequal distribution of aid and funding to prep for and prevent damage in the five boroughs based upon who or what is visible. Um, we've seen this in the flooding of the subways and the flooding of basement apartments, leading to the deaths of many citizens of New York. So in spite of both Hurricane Ida and Sandy, little physical progress has been made in improving these underground spaces like the subway system and converting illegal basement units. So once again, we've found that if underground spaces are not a part of your daily life, whether through public transportation or housing, the people who do occupy those spaces become more of an afterthought. Something that complicates our argument a little bit um, is the existence of these underground mega mansions in London called icebergs. And the elite have been building them since 2008 due to the implementation of various planning laws in high-income traditional London neighborhoods that prevent upwards and outwards expansion. So much like skyscrapers above the surface in New York, London subterranean housing acts as a sign of wealth and private spe spectacle. In social and cultural geographer Bradley Garrett's book, Bunker, Building for End Times, he describes how the wealthy intentionally seek underground spaces to keep their circles elusive by physically preventing outsiders from infiltrating. Garrett calls this the automization of social life, in which we build armored rebouts to keep wealth and possession inside and potentially hostile forces out. Recently, with scientific consensus regarding the impending threat of climate change to our Earth, wealthy individuals have been bunkering down amidst growing existential thoughts. Conceded efforts to seek underground spaces have been made by famous figures, including Tom Cruise, Kim Kardashian, and Donald Trump. What this tells us is that with wealth, the subterranean can serve as a space of safety and retreat, particularly from government surveillance. Without wealth, those residing in basements are still vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and governmental oversight that can lead to the loss of their shelter and, in extreme cases, their lives. 
So we were curious if these same kind of subterranean mega mansions could exist within New York City. What we found was that it is impossible due to the geological bedrock beneath the surface. And the specific rock is known as igneous schist. And basically, you it's very hard to drill through or dig through that kind of rock. And the only person, I believe, to have ever tried was yelled at by all of his neighbors on the Upper West Side for months because... Of Jack the jackhammer. Yep. So, in realizing this, we can kind of see that the reason there can't be invisible subterranean wealth in Manhattan is because of the noise, which makes it very visible. And maybe someone would try again in the future if iceberg homes become a trend in New York, but I think their neighbors will get pissed off. We'd like to interrupt our podcast with a quick sponsor from... McEwen Cafe. Thank you, Kevin, for sponsoring this podcast. Go Sox! Now back to you, Emmy. Although New York has yet to fully prove itself in providing for the vulnerable citizens in the event of a climate disaster, it does have plans to prepare over time. For example, in 2015, after Sandy, it implemented the 1NYC um program or plan that seeks adaptation and mitigation efforts within New York to protect its citizens from climate impacts and uh, facilitate a just transition away from fossil fuel dependency. This, you know, pales in comparison to London, which is thought more of as a minimum city, which Ashley Dawson, the author of Extreme Cities, considers um, a city that has lack of ability to provide for its wider, wider sorry, urban population outside of the elite. So while New York does have a plan to build a resilient city against climate change, that ultimately may not be enough given um, a historical record of not providing adequate support for vulnerable communities who are living on the front line of climate change and face the brunt of its impacts. Something we've been thinking about continually through this case study of New York is how other U.S. governments have responded to more extreme climate disasters because for a long time, New York didn't really have to deal with that many disasters or they're not in a specific position on the globe that... um, faces the full force of things like hurricanes. Um, For example, in 2006, when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, um, there was an increased study of how the government uses disasters to further their interests um, and supposed improvement efforts. And a specific example of that within New Orleans was that really the entire city was underwater and Developers took the opportunity to reform the entire public school system in New Orleans and really get rid of it and replace it with private charter schools. Um, So although that can be seen as a form of reforming schools for the better, many of the locals disagreed with it because the endeavors for fixing these schools were being auctioned off to private developers, which meant that 
those people were profiting directly off of the trauma of losing their neighborhoods. And I don't want to get too much into it, but really just throughout U.S. history, and particularly in the early 2000s, there was a trend of private developers being hired by and encouraged by the U.S. government to get involved in disaster relief, which ultimately ended up serving the greater interests of not the people affected by these disasters, but the people making money off of them. With all of that in mind, I really wouldn't be surprised to see New York follow the same course of action. Um, It's unfortunate, but historically, it is what the U.S. government has done, and I think with a Katrina-level, if a Katrina-level disaster were to level New York City in the same way that it did that city, um, there's an endless amount of possibilities for the kind of changes that New York would make, but it's really a matter of if those changes would be benefiting the people affected by the trauma or not. And I think we've already seen some of these examples in how New York has responded to um, Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Ida um, in the East Side Resiliency Project, a billion-dollar project, and the lack of funding that is going to other places that have been affected. Um, And it's clear that the New York City Council people are realizing this already and will continue petitioning the government to give them more funds, but are in the same position of worry that things might not change and history will repeat itself. This really ties into seeing disaster relief as an industry within capitalism rather than just a means of helping people and how disaster relief has become privatized since Hurricane Katrina. Um, And another interesting thought on that, that when I read it kind of just scratched a spot in my brain was that um, 75% of essential workers in New York live in the outer boroughs, um, but lower Manhattan and the financial district specifically are the economic center of the world. And we see those funds going there, regardless of how much essential workers might be contributing to the economy. Not to mention immigrants and particularly undocumented immigrants, many of whom are not paid livable wages, are the backbone of so many industries within this economy. And these people are living in the outer boroughs, and many of them are living in these illegal basement homes. And we aren't seeing those needs prioritized at all, even though they might be considered a critical part of infrastructure. Those are some pretty pessimistic views that I have, but what do you think, Emmy? I am slightly more optimistic given that um, New York City has created their one NYC plan, which does address um, some goals related to climate adaptation and mitigation measures um, and also carving a pathway towards a just and equitable transition when implementing these measures. However, as Justin Brannon, um, Brooklyn Councilman, recently said in a PBS interview, um, what will hurt us the most is the glacial pace of bureaucracy and the use of temporary Band-Aid solutions to buy more time rather than implementing permanent and effective climate solutions now. Um, And 
by solutions, not just those that cater to the uh, middle, upper class communities in New York, but those who are facing the brunt of climate change, um, lower income communities who contribute the least to this phenomenon. Ultimately, we want to draw a final connection back to the topic of this episode, which is the New York City underground. And in addition to how New York City and other cities have historically reacted to natural disasters or climate disasters, in New York, we have seen the underground be largely ignored despite the immense damage that has impacted um, both the subway systems and the underground basement apartments that um, are very populated right now due to the affordable housing crisis. Because humans are conditioned to view the world horizontally, the reason that these spaces are ignored is because we don't think about the underground if it is not a large part of our daily lives. And regardless of subway systems and transportation in New York, so many people have the option to not use those systems. And the majority of people in New York City certainly do not live in those spaces. That neglect will continue to reinforce class inequalities in New York that we see reflected in the city's response to disasters in underground spaces. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Architecture and the Environment. Once again, I'm Emmy Goodwin. And I'm Amy Booth. And we'll see you next week. Damn, she was really right about our friendship going down the toilet. Emmy, stop recording. God!